it's important to say that there are data disasters, if you like, happening pretty much all the time. There's at least several big ones a year. Hello, Matthew Grant here, and delighted to have you joining us for this week's episode of the Instec London podcast. Now, we're hearing a lot about the importance of data and insurance for pricing, making risk decisions, and managing losses. But all that data is only any good if it's of decent quality and it hasn't been compromised because it's incomplete or just wrong. This week, I'm talking to Nick Mayer, CEO and founder of DQ Pro. Nick has built a successful business helping insurance companies manage and measure their data quality. He built a business from scratch with no external investment. And after a couple of years, it's already working with a significant number of the insurers in London and in the US. We talk about how Nick has built the business, how he learned to build products and his tip for other aspiring founders. Nick, good morning. Great to be catching up with you. You are the first guest on the Instat London podcast that we've had calling in from Portugal. Hi, Matthew. Yeah, we lived in South London for 15 years. I've got a young family, three small kids. And in July, we moved out here and I spend my time between Lisbon and London. And there's a strong tech scene out there, isn't there, in, in Lisbon? It's blossoming, actually. There's a number of huge companies have um, have relocated here, both in Lisbon and in Porto. Uh, highly educated workforce, great people, English spoken widely, also really good from a time zone perspective. It's the same time as the UK, so it's a great place to work from. It's quite an exciting place to be right now. We're going to talk about Atticus DQ Pro, talk a little bit about what it does, but also very interested around you know, how you ended up building the business and what you're seeing as a founder of a company that's that's growing at a, a good rate but is is not taking on external funding. So I guess we just kick off with just, just what does Atticus DQ Pro do? So DQ Pro is monitoring software, primarily for specialty and commercial insurers. We have new tech that plugs into all the old tech, all the old legacy systems and monitors that carrier data for things like underwriting issues, data quality um, or compliance. And then we help those business users get on top of those issues and fix it and wrap the whole thing up with the audit capability and reporting that we need for in a regulated environment. Um, it's a bit like the parking sensor in a car. So DQ Pro warns business users of something before it causes problems. And previously, carriers have been doing this in a very manual, clunky way uh, with a lot of cost. And we've been able to take that out to um, automation and speed the whole thing up, which saves them time, money, and, and ultimately um, reduces their operating risk. That's a great analogy, actually, given my own experience of trying to reverse cars when I don't have a parking sensor in the mix, it starts to get much <laughs> more difficult than it used to be. So, so maybe one day, you know, nobody will be able to survive without DQ Pro because they all, they all need their parking sensors to assess their, their data. So data is clearly very important. We're hearing a lot about big data generally, but most of the companies offering data are coming at it from a slightly different angle, which is helping people understand how they can find new analytics, you know, new views of risks. When you, when you go in and sell DQ Pro, how, how engaged are the companies you're, you're talking to when this is something that is 
you know, in many ways is essential, but it's maybe not always on the top 10 things they want to be going out to, to learn about just now. It varies. I mean, I think if you look at the London market in particular, there's kind of a bell curve in terms of um, awareness and adoption. On one hand, you've got some large carriers with their innovation arms, um, you know, like Excel and Hiscox and Britain Allen, you know, they're doing great, interesting things. And those are the companies that, that tend to get what we do slightly faster. And then as you move across, you're kind of getting into perhaps companies that are um, still struggling to work out what innovation means to them. And, and further, right, you know, companies are just frankly trying to stay alive in the current market. So it does vary. I think what's common to all of them is that you need a foundation of great data and controls in place in order to have that input to everything that InsureTech promises, whether that's artificial intelligence or predictive analytics. Um, you can't realize that capability in, unless you've got that firm base in place. And now you made it into the Oxbow Partners Impact 25. At the time, you had, I think, already established 10 clients in London. So clearly, you've had some, some good success getting into the marketplace. But what was it that originally gave you the motivation to launch DQ Pro? We started as a, a people business providing consulting and resourcing services, mainly to the London market. We started in 2008, and we ran that quite successfully. You will know that running a people business is not without its, its challenges. Um, and we were very keen to sort of move into um, product to help sort of level up our, our revenue. And moving to something that's more sustainable, recurring from a revenue perspective made sense alongside our consulting piece. So. That meant learning about products and how to do that well, which was challenging. And we started with our first product, which actually was a, it was a data warehousing product. That was modestly successful. We made money on the way in. We made money on the way out. Uh, we actually ended up selling the assets because it just wasn't scalable and wasn't giving us the kind of returns we wanted. So great thing about consulting is it gives you that idea for where there are problems. And we knew there was a big problem around data and controls and how carriers check that data. So that gave us the idea for DQ Pro for the product. I pitched a deck of six slides to six managing agents. And of them, I think two of them were very keen um, to work with us and take that forward. I think all of them thought it was a great idea, but really we wanted someone to work with and collaborate. Brit were the first carrier that we decided to work with and they were incredibly generous and also sort of putting some money in the hat too. So we did in quite a good way. We worked with them on prototyping, building that out, working very closely with their users before we got to a full launch back in 2016. Unlike a lot of companies, when you started off, and I think this is still the case, you've chosen not to go for external investment up until now. You've been bootstrapping that. I mean, what, what was your, what drove the decision to go bootstraps rather than look for funding? We were in a very fortunate position of having our own cash from the consulting business. We used that money and those profits that we'd retained over a number of years to give us what I would say is the equivalent of a seed or maybe even a super seed level of funding. And that was hugely helpful in terms of us getting things off the ground. It also saved me a whole load of time in, in terms of going out and looking to fundraise, which as any founder knows is a challenge in itself and takes up a huge amount of time. So, yeah, we were lucky. We funded ourselves and we played this out on our own dime, as it were. 
I suppose then, unlike pure bootstrapping, where people are funding as they grow, you, you've essentially you said you're self, you're self-funded. But Jack Dorsey's got this great comment about Twitter, which was constraint causes creativity. What have you found in your experience also looking at what other people are doing when they do have funding? What are the kind of benefits you might see when you've got a limited amount of money and particularly when it's your own money you're spending? It really forces you to think very hard about the problem you're solving and, and ensure that it's, it's worthwhile. So that upfront validation with real customers is key. Um, we were very careful not to cut a single line of code until we knew we had something that was valuable that solved the pain point, um, that was something that people people wanted. And, you know, it really gives you focus. It gives you this tremendous focus on on the problem area that you're that you're that you're solving and resourceful. So, you know, as a small team you have to be able to wear a number of hats and do a number of different things. And we I think we've been able to do that very successfully so far. One of the other things you have to do to be successful in building the business is selling technology into insurance companies yeah how have you developed your skills in that area and what have you learned about making that b2b sale selling into big insurance companies as a startup even if you have industry experience it's incredibly challenging the mentality is usually very conservative um there's a high hurdle rate in terms of getting to the right people quickly and then getting through the various steps so it's a common it's a common complaint i think um with some of the startups that the sales cycle is too long and you know people talk about well that can be anywhere from you know six to six months to two years i think our fastest has been four weeks and our longest has been just over two years where it's been constantly progressing uh perhaps going to the u.s for approval it's 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 really hard but when you start you don't really know what that process is and i think it's important to say that so you're constantly iterating um, they're constantly trying new things and you're trying to get to a sales process that's actually quite uh, quite repeatable but you know if you've got a good understanding of the carrier problem who needs it most and why they need it that's really your starting point and from then on it's about building quite a systematic uh, funnel if you like funnel process to move people through that chain and get to the point where people are prepared to to pilot with you and then ultimately sign you know, a live production contract. And you, you talked about sort of learning to build products before, and we'll come back onto that in a minute. But to be successful in your business, where you've got very tight margins and you need, you need to bring the revenue, and you can't, two years is hopefully at the extreme end of the spectrum on there. I mean, how have you yourself kind of developed an approach with you and the team to try to minimize that? sales cycle and yeah what, what advice would you give other, to other people who are selling into this marketplace to try and get it as short as possible and, and targeted to the right people in the organizations who are going to make the decisions it's about knowing who is your best fit customer that's uh, what we, we refer to it as as early as possible and you might need to cycle through that a few times in order to get to that person once you are there then it really is about making sure they understand the benefits that you bring, the value it's going to add to their business process and what it means to the people who will be using it. Because I think the common concern is how long is integration going to take? Uh, how many people am I going to upset in the organization by introducing this? And how smooth is that process? So by having that, um, having that sorted up front early on is, is a huge help. 
We found that piloting is by far the most simple way to get people to experience the benefits that DKPO brings and, and ultimately um, get them on board when it comes to risk. And they get much more comfortable working with us and the software once they've done that. And we've, we've spent an awful lot of time simplifying the pilot, making it easy. And we've kind of streamlined that whole process now, which is working really well. For anybody that's listening from an insurance side, particularly those in innovation roles or who are given the task of bringing in companies like yourself, what would your request be to them to make life easier for other organizations like themselves that are selling products and you need to, again, need to, need to get that process completed fairly quickly? Any carrier that's serious about innovation, even if they don't have an innovation arm, you know, they need to make sure someone is responsible for dealing with innovative opportunities and someone who understands what that means, who understands how startups work and the processes and constraints of which, which they work by. So having that person available as a guide uh, when you're a supplier is, is just incredibly useful and helps things move forward faster. The other aspect I would focus on is around the procurement process. Startups are still having to deal with a very traditional heavyweight large company process, uh, which might, you know, I think we've, we've even had sort of 200 page contracts, heavy legal involvement, and there must be a lighter way of doing things, especially if you're just running a pilot. And still we see this. So those are the two biggest changes, kind of almost like a, a track B procurement process for innovation would be make a huge difference. And any companies you want to call out specifically good in this area to give some recognition to? Well, Brit were great to work with. I think they're very intentional and quite structured in how they do things. Markel, Tokyo Marine Kiln, all been fantastic. And Brit, I believe also were willing to go and talk to other people and act as reference sites about what you've done together. Yeah, and that's massive. That's also another way you can expedite your sales cycle. And in a, in a small market, like the specialty market, you don't have too many chances to, to get stuff right. So word of mouth is incredibly strong. Reference sites are incredibly strong. And we're very fortunate. We've got all of our customers willing to act as reference sites. Uh, so that, that's just been fantastic. The other area that a lot of companies in early stages go through is either incubators, accelerators, or they take part in different types of funding schemes. Up until now, I don't believe you've done any of those. Is that as an intentional part of just focusing on the business? Do you just sort of believe those don't work or do you see a role either for you or other organizations as they start to grow, starting to get involved with some of the opportunities out there? For us, we had funding and we had uh, early customers and we were able to sort of get things moving ourselves and came to pilots and proof of concepts. So the advantage is that we also had an office from our established business. So all the things that come with an accelerator kind of just didn't really quite add up for us. Even a small amount of equity just didn't make sense. I think sort of going forward, uh, we are looking quite closely at what we do now because of the stage that we're at, which is very much in scale up. And we're, we're actively considering whether we do one or two this year. We really like the look of the Lloyd's Lab. It's quite a challenge to, quite a high hurdle weight to get in, but we're going to give, probably going to give that a go. Uh, there's also a couple of good ones, I think, look promising in the States. So the U.S. specialty market is a big potential market for us. And obviously, as a smaller, smaller business, it's, it's harder to move into. So an accelerator is a great way of increasing our exposure there. 
Yes, yeah, so the Live Lab is definitely getting a lot, of, a lot of good feedback just based on what I've been hearing from them and what I've seen directly. And actually also on the US one, you mentioned that in passing, but you do have quite a few of your clients that have actually got you installed or access to DQ Pro in the US, don't you? We've got users, I think, in five continents now, if you include all of the branch offices of carriers. And we've got some US-specific customers in Virginia um, at quite an early stage, but they, they are our first production license sales. So I think it's huge. It's a huge market and there's much more we can do. It's less, less regulated from a, a data controls perspective. I know that if you, if you talk to anyone in the US about that, they'll, they'll maybe strongly disagree. But if you compare it to what Solvency 2 requires or the Lloyd's minimum standards, it's still fairly, fairly light out there, but that's changing fast. So the sun never sets on a DQ Pro user somewhere in the world. Any time of day or night, somebody is uh, running your system. It's a great place they've got to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's a great feeling when you can create something uh, in a small office in London with a capable team. And you've learned that there's somebody in Colombia or Brazil, which we had last year, using your software to solve a problem that they've had for a long time. It's just a brilliant feeling. How many users do you reckon you have globally? We're heading for about 1,000. We have 12 carriers actively using the software and a bunch more coming on board to the pipeline and the pilot process. As you said earlier, you, you didn't come from a product background. You, you obviously can go out and you can employ people to build those. But you know, how have you yourself gained your knowledge to enable you to define, build the products, you know, make sure you've got something that's fit for use for the clients? As a team, we've all had to learn. For me personally, from a consulting background, I had to be you know, self-aware enough to realize that I had to go back to school. I just read a huge amount of stuff on software, what it takes to start and grow a software business. I spoke to other founders. I went to software founder conferences like Microconf and Business of Software, uh, and I consumed hours of podcasts. So all of that, I just found incredibly interesting once I got into it. We did have a stroke of luck in terms of our development team. Uh, it was an ex-colleague um, of mine who uh, worked for a company that, that went into administration. And at the time, I was looking at the assets of that company and working out whether anything could be useful. Um, and I soon realized, actually, the strongest assets were some of the people there. And so we're incredibly fortunate that we're able to sort of hire, hire them I get more bored. We already knew how to work with each other. We talked about Lloyd's briefly in the, in the context of the lab. Now, Lloyd's has also, of course, released the future of Lloyd's and Blueprint One, which does mention data and processes and regulation quite significantly throughout. What's your view on both what they've got in there and the, how long it takes to sort of deliver against that vision? I'm quite positive about the blueprint. I recognize there are still a lot of naysayers out there, but you know the fundamental position is the London market has to change. If it's going to survive and move into the next, the next few decades successfully, we were enthused to see that data quality, data checks uh, were mentioned throughout the document. I think data is one of the key foundations there. But the big challenge that Lloyd's have is it's not really in control of where that data comes from and who produces it. So one of the points I think mentioned in the report is that there are implications, I think they say, when data is received by a broker, 
that is of sub quality from a minimum standards perspective, but doesn't actually say what that what those implications will be. I know that people like to move to the point where sort of potentially apply a penalty to the broker, but I think that's quite a negative approach. I I really think we have to think about how you incentivize the broker to provide great data. And right now the market's just not there. So the further upstream they can solve that problem, the better for everyone down the chain who consumes that data. Good to hear you positive about the future of lawyers. I mean, I've got to believe there are going to be a lot of opportunities in there for you, particularly given that you've, you've got such good penetration into the lawyers market. I mean, how many companies are you working just now with, Nick, that are in Lloyd's, do you know that figure offhand? It's probably about nine or 10. I think we have a 30% share of the Lloyd's market by gross written premium, which is quite encouraging. I guess the challenge is always, you know, where does this fit on the list of priorities for people? Temptation is sometimes, sometimes yeah. to go after the, the things that bring the business in without necessarily following as rigorously as they need to what the risks are, although the regulatory environment is getting tighter and tighter on that. There are data disasters, if you like, happening pretty much all the time. There's at least several big ones a year. Some you hear about in the press, but there's stuff that happens actually below the surface. And some of the fastest sales that we've had have been where someone's had an internal issue that, it, that has potential to cause them some, some kind of problem. And um, they recognize they need software to prevent that happening. Going, going forward. And so we have helped them reduce that risk significantly and deal with it in a better way. So for anyone listening that is, is worried they might have an impending data disaster um, before the insurance <laughs> society gets hold of the news, give, give Nick a call and see how DQ Pro can help you. Um, well, that's great, Nick. It's almost wrapped it up. I just, before we did wrap up totally, I just wanted to talk to you about a couple of things. One of those is how do you get the information you need. We talked a little bit about this on the way as you explained how you learn how to build products. I know you're a big podcast fan, but you know, you're running a business, you've got a young family, you're in a different part of the world. How, how do you find time and how do you focus yourself to keep learning and stay abreast of things? I'm making good use of my plane time at the moment. I fly six hours a week. And so it's really about trying to make, make sure that I, c- I can read and I can get my podcasts in. Um, I spend a lot of time with other founders and senior people in the market that I'm lucky enough to know who've helped from a mentoring perspective. And I think it's important to take some downtime too, because the journey as a founder is not an easy one. I like getting out there and and, um, into the outdoors. I like my fly fishing. Um, All of that, I think, is important if if you're going to spend time learning. Well, you're one of my um, podcast buddies who's recommended quite a few ones that I found really useful listening to. But anything top of mind just now that you'd like to call out as what you think is particularly useful? I'm a huge fan of Startups for the Rest of Us. That's with Rob Walling and Mike Tabor. Great podcast that's been running for almost 500 episodes now. Uh, that's essential listening for anyone who's looking to build what, what, what I'd call a non-venture track business. So self-funding, bootstrapping, um, they're also the guys behind MicroConf, which is just an incredible um, conference for anyone interested in building their own product uh, on a smaller scale. They have one each year, I think, in, in the US and one in Europe, which I've been to, and it's just been an incredible experience. Um, startup chat with Heaton Shah and Steli Efti is great. That just covers a range of uh, topics around startups. 
and founders. And Heaton has a great newsletter as well. It's a weekly newsletter, which is lots of great information on how to build and market products successfully. Great. Okay. Well, we'll stick those in the the episode notes. And you had a book recommendation as well you wanted to share with us. I really like Inspired by Marty Kagan. So a good friend of mine uh, was very kindly uh, gave me that. And that just changed the way I, you think about building products. So it's about how to build products that customers uh, love. And it's all about the whole team view. So it's about taking input from and data points from everyone uh, to help you get a, a better result. And a book that a book that came out last year that I, I also really loved is um, called Obviously Awesome by April Dumford. And that's all about uh, product positioning. It's this notion that um, you need to be able to explain what your product does in the minimum amount of words that customers get it, buy it, love it. And it really, it, it, it's really important to recognize, I think, that your positioning changes as you grow as you evolve, as you learn more about your problem and the startup that you're building. And that was a, that was a great kind of input in terms of how we, how we go forward with, with our own positioning. So I find yeah. it really useful. Well, thanks. Yeah, we'll stick those in the episode notes. And Inspired, the Marty Kagan one is, yeah, definitely one of my favorites as well. So glad we both enjoy reading that one. And then finally, you, know, you, are, you are a corp member of Instead London. You haven't been there so much just given that you're now spending half your week in Portugal. But you know, what, what sort of brought you to get associated with us you know, more closely be good to get your sort of thoughts on what we're up to i think you run a great operation I mean, you were there right from the start and ran some of the very first insurtech events and it's, it's been really good to see that mature um i i really enjoy the monday evening events when i can make them parenthood tends to get in the way but um it says a lot that you can get so many people out on a monday evening and the feedback's universally positive and um, I really like this podcast, so I found, found that really useful and a good newsletter too. So really what you've done, I think, is just to kind of coalesce everything into one community and it, it's valuable, if, whether you're a founder, a carrier, or um, you just want to learn more about InsureTech and, and how the world's changing. No, well, thanks for your support, Nick. It's been great to get your feedback over the last, last couple of years. Uh, is there anything we haven't covered you'd like to talk about, either on DQ Pro or your experiences of building businesses? I'm really looking forward to the year ahead. For us, it's, it's about how we can continue to add value in more places. Um, we're particularly looking hard at where we can plug in as a service to any point in the value chain um, through our APIs and how we make that happen. We have a nice firm base to build from, lots of interest, lots of inbound interest, and more and more people realizing that this is a problem that must be solved in order to do the rest. If next year looks anything like the last couple of years, I'm sure it's going to be very successful. And just finally, before we wrap up, if anybody wants to learn a bit more about either you personally or DQ Pro, what's the best way to get in contact? LinkedIn, Nick Mayer at DQ Pro. You, you'll find me. Also, you can jump to our website, which is dqpro.com. Excellent. Well, thank you, Nick. I will let you get back to your day in Portugal and look forward to catching up with you soon face-to-face. Thank you very much. Thank you, Matthew. Thanks for having me on the show. Now, if you're wondering, yes, those were seagulls you could hear in the background. Coming up on next week's episode, we'll have the highlights from our recent payments event in London, a packed audience for that one, and lots of really interesting discussions. 
Now, you can check out our whole series of podcasts and the accompanying articles at www.instec.london, where you can also find out about the other events we're doing and sign up for the newsletter and see what else we're looking at.